Section 4 of The Empire of Business by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tina Ding. The Empire of Business. Section 4. How to Win Fortune. Labor is divided into two great armies the agricultural and the industrial. In these, diverse forces are in operation. In the former, everything tends to a further distribution of land among the many. In the latter, everything tends to a concentration of business in the hands of the few. One of the two great fallacies upon which Progress and Poverty, Mr. George's book, is founded is that the land is getting more and more into the hands of the few. Now, the only source from which Mr. George could obtain correct information upon this point is the census, and this tells us that, in 1850, the average extent of farms in the United States was 203 acres, in 1860, 199 acres, in 1870, 153 acres, and that in 1880 it was still further reduced to 134 acres. The reason is obvious for this rapid distribution of the land. The farmer who cultivates a small farm by his own labor is able to drive out of the field the ambitious capitalist who attempts to farm upon a large scale with the labor of others. In Great Britain, Nothing has been more significant than that the tillers of small farms have passed through the agricultural depression there far better than those who cultivated large farms. So, in both countries, we have proof that under the free play of equal laws, land is becoming more and more divided among the masses of the people. In the whole range of social questions, no fact is more important than this, and nothing gives the thoughtful student greater satisfaction. The triumph of the small proprietor over the large proprietor ensures the growth and maintenance of that element in society upon which civilization can most securely depend for there is no force in the nation so conservative of what is good, so fair, so virtuous, as a race of men who till the soil they own. Happily for mankind, experience proves that man cannot work more soil profitably than he can till himself with the aid of his own family. When we turn to the other army of labor, the industrial, we are obliged to confess that it is swayed by the opposite law, which tends to concentrate manufacturing and business affairs generally in a few vast establishments. The fall in prices of manufactured articles has been startling. Never were the principal articles of consumption so low as they are today. This cheapening process is made possible only by concentration. We find 1,700 watches per day turned out by one company, and watches are sold for a few dollars apiece. 
we have mills making many thousand yards of calico per day, and this necessary article is to be had for a few cents per yard. Manufacturers of steel make 2,500 tons per day, and four pounds of finished steel are sold for five cents, and so on through the entire range of industries. Divide the huge factories into smaller establishments, and it will be found impossible to manufacture some of the articles at all. The success of the process being often dependent on its being operated upon a large scale, while the cost of such articles as could be produced in small establishments would be two or three times their present prices. There does not appear to be any counteracting force to this law of concentration in the industrial world. On the contrary, the active forces at work seem to demand greater and greater output or turnover from each establishment in order that the minimum of cost should be reached. Hence comes the rapid and continuous increase of the capital of manufacturing and commercial concerns, 5, 10, 15, and even 20 millions being sometimes massed in one corporation. Has the young man now a chance? This has given rise to a complaint which is often heard, but which I hope to show has no foundation. The young practical man points to these and says to himself, quote, it is no longer possible for our class without capital to rise beyond the position of employees upon salaries. There is a lion in the path which leads to independent commands or to partnership, and this lion is the huge establishments already existing, which are an impassable barrier to our advancement." End quote. The man engaged in the agricultural army, as we have seen, has nothing to fear from capital. With a small sum, which is not very difficult for him to save or borrow, he can begin farming, the only competition with which he has to contend being that of others of his own class situated like himself. It is certainly more difficult for a mechanic or practical man to establish a new business or to win partnership in one that exists, then it is for the young farmer to begin his business. Yet the difficulties are not insuperable, nor greater than have hitherto existed. They are not such as to stimulate the ambitious, and this is always to be taken into account that if the race in the industrial and business world be harder to win, the prize is infinitely greater. Before considering the prospects of the mechanic in the industrial, of the clerk in the mercantile, commercial, and financial worlds, let me show that no classes other than these two have had much to do with establishing the factories, business houses, and financial institutions which are best known in the United States today. And first, as to the part of trained mechanics, I select the best-known industrial establishments in each department, many of them the most extensive works of their kind and of worldwide reputation. Baldwin Works for locomotives, 
Sellers & Company, Bemen & Doherty for mechanical tools, Distance Works for saws, Works of the Master Stopson and of Thomas Dolan, Philadelphia, and Gary of Baltimore, Textile Fabrics, Fairbanks for scales, Studebakers for wagons who count their wagons by the acre, Pullman of Chicago, Allison of Philadelphia for cars, Washburn and Moen and Cleveland Rolling Mills, Steel Wire, etc. Bartlett Iron Founder, Baltimore, Sloan's, also Higgins, Carpets, Westinghouse Electrical Apparatus, Peter Henderson and Company and Landreth and Company, Seeds, Harper Brothers, Publishers, Babbitt for Babbitt's Metal, Otis Works, Cleveland, Boiler Steel, The Remington Works and Colts Works, Hartford, Firearms, Singer Company, Hole, Grover, Sewing Machines, McCormick Works of Chicago, Balls of Canton, and Walter A. Woods for Agricultural Implements, Steamship Building, Roach, Cramp, Nearfi on the Atlantic, Scott upon the Pacific, Parkhurst, Wheeler, Kirby, McDougal, Craig, Coffinbury, Wallace, the leading officials of shipbuilding companies on our Great Lakes, Horseshoes, Burtons, Atterbury Works for Glass, Grotzinger's Tanning, Ames Works for Shuffles, Steinway, Chickering, and Kanabi Pianos. Every one of these great works was founded and managed by mechanics, men who served their apprenticeship. The list could be greatly extended, and if we were to include those which were created by men who entered life as office boys or clerks, we should embrace almost every famous manufacturing concern in the country. Addison, for instance, was a telegraph operator. Corliss of Corliss Engine, Cheney of Cheney Silk, Roblin of Wire Fame, Spreckles in Sugar Refining, all and many more captains of industry were poor boys with natural aptitude to whom a regular apprenticeship was scarcely necessary. In the mercantile, commercial, and financial branches of business, which are all under the law which drives business affairs into large concerns, the poor clerk takes the place of the trained mechanic in the industrial world. Cleveland's, Jeffreys, Sloan's, the Lords, the Taylors, the Phelpses, the Dodges, the gigantic houses of Jordan and Marsh in Boston, a field in Chicago, Bar in St. Louis, Wanamaker in Philadelphia, Meldrum and Anderson, Buffalo, Newcomb, Endicott and Company, Detroit, Taylor, Cleveland, Daniels and Fisher, Denver, Horn and Campbell and Dick, Pittsburgh. All these and the corresponding houses throughout the country, as far as I am able to trace their history, have the same story to tell. Wanamaker, Claflin, Jordan, Lord, Field, Barr, and the others, all poor boys in the store, and Phelps and Dodge both poor clerks. 
In banking and finance, it is an oft-repeated story that our Stanfords, Rockefellers, Goulds, Sages, Fields, Dillons, Seligmans, Wilsons, and Huntingtons came from the ranks. The millionaires who are in active control started as poor boys and were trained in that sternest but most efficient of all schools, poverty. Where is the college-made men? I asked a city banker to give me a few names of presidents and vice-presidents and cashiers of our great New York City banks who had begun as boys or clerks. He sent me 36 names and wrote he would send me more next day. I cannot take the reader's time with a complete list, but here are a few of the best known. Williams, President, Chemical Bank. Watson and Lang, Bank of Montreal. Tappan, President, Gallican National. Brinkerhoff, President, Butchers and Drovers Bank. Clark, Vice President, American Exchange. Jewett, President, Irvin National. Harris, President, Nassau Bank. Crane, President, Shoe and Leather Bank. Nash, President, Corn Exchange Bank. Kennan, President, Chase National. Kennan, Vice President, Fourth National. Montague, President, Second National. Baker, President, First National. Hamilton, Vice President, Bowerwee Bank, and so on. The absence of the college graduate in this list should be deeply weighed. I have inquired and searched everywhere in all quarters, but find small trace of him as the leader in affairs, although not seldom occupying positions of trust in financial institutions. Nor is this surprising. The prize takers have too many years the start of the graduate they have entered for the race invariably in their teens in the most valuable of all the years for learning from 14 to 20, while the college student has been learning a little about the barbarous and petty squabbles of a far distant past or trying to master languages which are dead, such knowledge as seems adapted for life upon another planet than this as far as business affairs are concerned. The future captain of industry is hotly engaged in the school of experience, obtaining the very knowledge required for his future triumphs. I do not speak of the effect of college education upon young men training for the learned professions, for which it is, up to a certain point, almost indispensable in our day for the average youth but the almost total absence of the graduates from high position in the business world seems to justify the conclusion that college education as it exists seems almost fatal to success in that domain. It is to be noted that salaried officials are not in a strict sense in business. A captain of industry is one who makes his all in his business and depends upon success for compensation. 
It is in this field that the graduate has little chance. Entering at twenty against the boy who swept the office or who begins as shipping clerk at fourteen. The facts prove this. There are some instances of the sons of businessmen, graduates of colleges, who address themselves to a business life and succeed in managing a business already created. But even these are few compared with those who fail in keeping the fortune received. There has come, however, in recent years, the Polytechnic and Scientific School, or course of study for boys, which is beginning to show most valuable fruits in the manufacturing branch. The trained mechanic of the past, who has, as we have seen, hitherto carried off most of the honors in our industrial works, is now to meet a rival in the scientifically educated youth who will push him hard, very hard indeed. Three of the largest steel manufacturing concerns in the world are already under the management of three young educated men. Students of these schools who left theory at school for practice in the works while yet in their teens. Walker, Illinois Steel Company, Chicago. Schwab, Edgar Thompson Works. Potter, Homestead Steel Works, Pittsburgh, are types of the new product not one of them yet thirty. Most of the chiefs of departments under them are of the same class. Such young educated men have one important advantage over the apprenticed mechanic. They are open-minded and without prejudice. The scientific attitude of mind, that of the searcher after truth, renders them receptive of new ideas. Great and invaluable as the working mechanic has been, and is, and will always be, yet he is disposed to adopt narrow views of affairs, for he is generally well up in years before he comes into power. It is different with the scientifically trained boy. He has no prejudices, and goes in for the latest invention or newest method, no matter if another has discovered it. He adopts the plan that will beat the record and discards his own devices or ideas, which the working mechanic superintendent can rarely be induced to do. Let no one, therefore, underrate the advantage of education. Only it must be education adapted to the end in view and must give instruction bearing upon a man's career if he is to make his way to fortune. Thus, in the financial, commercial, and mercantile branches of business, as in manufacturing, we have to ask not what place the educated mechanic and practical men occupy, but what these two types have left for others throughout the entire business world. Very little indeed have they left. In the industrial department, the trained mechanic is the founder and manager of famous concerns. In the mercantile, commercial, and financial, it is the poor office boy who has proved to be the merchant prince in disguise, who surely comes into his heritage. They are the winning classes. 
it is the poor clerk and the working mechanic who finally rule in every branch of affairs without capital without family influence and without college education it is they who have risen to the top and taken command who have abandoned salaried positions and boldly risk all in the founding of a business college graduates will usually be found under salaries trusted subordinates neither capital nor influence nor college learning nor all combined have proved able to contend in business successfully against the energy and indomitable will which spring from all conquering poverty lest anything here said may be construed as tending to decry or disparage university education let me clearly state that those addressed are the fortunate poor young men who have to earn a living for such as can afford to obtain a university degree and have means sufficient to ensure a livelihood the writer is the last man to advise its rejection compared with which all the pecuniary gains of the multimillionaire are draws but for poor youth the earning of a competence is a duty and duty done is worth even more than university education precious as that is liberal education gives a man who really absorbs it higher tastes and aims than the acquisition of wealth and a world to enjoy into which the mere millionaire cannot enter to find therefore that it is not the best training for business is to prove its claim to a higher domain true education can be obtained outside of the schools genius is not an indigenous plant in the groves academic a wild flower found in the woods all by itself needing no care from society but average men needs universities are corporations to disappear the young practical men of today working at the bench or counter to whom the fair goddess fortune has not yet beckoned may be disposed to conclude that it is impossible to start business in this age there is something in that it is no doubt infinitely more difficult to start a new business of any kind today than it was but it is only a difference in form not in substance it is infinitely easier for a young practical man of ability to obtain an interest in existing firms than it has ever been the doors have not closed upon ability on the contrary they swing easier upon their hinges capital is not requisite family influence as before passes for nothing real ability the capacity for doing things never was so eagerly searched for as now and never commended such rewards the law which concentrates the leading industries and commercial mercantile and financial affairs in a few great factories or firms contains within itself another law not less imperious these vast concerns cannot be successfully conducted by salaried employees 
No great business of any kind can score an unusually brilliant and permanent success which is not in the hands of practical men pecuniarily interested in its results. In the industrial world, the days of corporations seem likely to come to an end. It has been necessary for me to watch closely most of my life the operations of great establishments owned by hundreds of absent capitalists and conducted by salaried officers. Contrasted with these, I believe that the partnership conducted by men vitally interested and in owning the works will make satisfactory dividends when the corporation is embarrassed and scarcely knows upon which side the balance is to be at the end of a year's operations. The great dry goods houses that interest their most capable men in the profits of each department succeed when those fail that endeavor to work with salaried men only. Even in the management of our great hotels, it is found wise to take into partnership the principal men. In every branch of business, this law is at work, and concerns are prosperous, generally speaking, just in proportion as they succeed in interesting in the profits a larger and larger proportion of their ablest workers. Cooperation in this form is fast coming in all great establishments. The manufacturing business that does not have practical manufacturing partners had better supply the omission without delay, and probably the very men required are the bright young mechanics who have distinguished themselves while working for a few dollars per day, or the youths from the polytechnic school. Instances constantly occur where the corporation unwilling to interest a promising practical man loses his services and sees an interest given him by some able individual manufacturer or commercial firm who are constantly on the lookout for that indispensable article, ability. It has not hitherto been the practice for corporations properly to reward these embryo managers, but this they must come to, if they are to stand the competition of works operated by those interested in the profits. Corporations, on the other hand, as I desire to point out to practical young men, have one advantage. Their shares are sold freely. If a worker wishes to become interested in any branch of manufacturing in America today, the path is easy. For fifty to a hundred dollars, he can become a stockholder. It is becoming more and more common for workers so to invest their savings. There are many well-managed corporations whose assets and prestige enable them to earn satisfactory returns, and no better evidence of capacity and of good judgment can a workman give to his employers than that furnished by the presence of his name upon the books as a shareholder in the concern. Working men have a prejudice against showing their employers that the wages they earn suffice to enable them to save, but this is a mistake. The saving workman is the valuable workman, and the wise employer regards the fact that he does save as prima facie evidence 
that there is something exceptionally valuable in him. It should be the effort of every corporation to induce its principal workers to invest their savings in its shares. Only in this way can corporations hope to cope successfully with individual manufacturers who have already discovered one of the valuable secrets of unusual success, that is, to share their profits with those who are most instrumental in producing them. The day of the absent capitalist stockholder who takes no interest in the operation of the works beyond the receipt of his dividend is certainly passing away. The day of the valuable active worker in the industrial world is coming. Let, therefore, no young practical workman be discouraged. On the contrary, let him be cheered. More and more it is becoming easier for the mechanic or practical man of real ability to dictate terms to his employers. Where there was one avenue of promotion, there are now a dozen. The enormous concern of the future is to divide its profits not among hundreds of idle capitalists who contribute nothing to its success, but among hundreds of its ablest employees, upon whose abilities and exertions success greatly depends. The capitalist absent stockholder is to be replaced by the able and present worker. As to the qualifications necessary for the promotion of young practical men, one cannot do better than quote George Eliot, who put the matter very pithily, quote, I'll tell you how I got on. I kept my ears and my eyes open, and I made my master's interest my own, end quote. The condition precedent for promotion is that the man must first attract notice. He must do something unusual, and especially must this be beyond the strict boundary of his duties. He must suggest, or save, or perform some service for his employer, which he could not be censured for not having done. When he has thus attracted the notice of his immediate superior, whether that be only the foreman of a gang, it matters not. The first great step has been taken, for upon his immediate superior, promotion depends. How high he climbs is his own affair. We often hear men complaining that they get no chance to show their ability when they do show ability that it is not recognized. There is very little in this. Self-interest compels the immediate superior to give the highest place under him to the men who can best fill it, for the officer is credited with the work of his department as a whole. No man can keep another down. It will be noticed that many of the practical men who have earned fame and fortune have done so through holding on to improvements which they have made. Improvements are easily made by practical men in the branch in which they are engaged, for they have the most intimate knowledge of the problems to be solved there. It is in this way that many of our valuable improvements have come. The man who has made an improvement should always have an eye upon obtaining an interest in the business, 
rather than an increase of salary. Even if the business up to this time has not become very prosperous, if he has the proper stuff in him, he believes that he could make it so, and so he could. All forms of business have their ups and downs. Seasons of depression and buoyancy succeed each other. One year of great profits, several years with little or none. This is a law of the business world, into the reasons of which I need not enter. Therefore, the able young practical men should not have much regard as to a choice of the branch of business. Any business properly conducted will yield, during a period of years, a handsome return. Dangers to young men. There are three great rocks ahead of the practical young man who has his foot upon the ladder and is beginning to rise. First, drunkenness, which of course is fatal. There is no use in wasting time upon any young man who drinks liquor, no matter how exceptional his talents. Indeed, the greater his talents are, the greater the disappointment must be. The second rock ahead is speculation. The business of a speculator and that of a manufacturer or man of affairs are not only distinct but incompatible. To be successful in the business world, the manufacturer's and the merchant's profits only should be sought. The manufacturer should go forward steadily, meeting the market price. When there are goods to sell, sell them. When supplies are needed, purchase them, without regard to the market price in either case. I have never known a speculative manufacturer or businessman who scored a permanent success. He is rich one day, bankrupt the next. Besides this, the manufacturer aims to produce articles and in so doing to employ labor. This furnishes a laudable career. A man in this avocation is useful to his kind. The merchant is usefully occupied distributing commodities, the banker in providing capital. The third rock is akin to speculation, endorsing. Businessmen require irregular supplies of money, at some periods little, at others enormous sums. Others being in the same condition, there is strong temptation to endorse mutually. This rock should be avoided. There are emergencies, no doubt, in which men should help their friends, but there is a rule that will keep one safe. No man should place his name upon the obligation of another if he has not sufficient to pay it without detriment to his own business. It is dishonest to do so. Men are trustees for those who have trusted them, and the creditor is entitled to all his capital and credit. For one's own firm, quote, your name, your fortune, and your sacred honor, end quote. But for others, no matter under what circumstances, only such aid as you can render without danger to your trust. It is a safe rule therefore, to give the cash direct that you have to spare for others, and never your endorsement or guarantee. 
One great cause of failure of young men in business is lack of concentration. They are prone to seek outside investments. The cause of many a surprising failure lies in so doing. Every dollar of capital and credit, every business thought should be concentrated upon the one business upon which a man has embarked. He should never scatter his shot. It is a poor business which will not yield better returns for increased capital than any outside investment. No man or set of men or corporation can manage a businessman's capital as well as he can manage it himself. The rule, quote, "Do not put all your eggs in one basket," end quote, does not apply to a man's life work. Put all your eggs in one basket, and then watch that basket. Is the true doctrine, the most valuable rule of all. While business of all kinds has gone and is still going rapidly into a few vast concerns, it is nevertheless demonstrated every day that genuine ability, interested in the profits, is not only valuable but indispensable to their successful operation. Through corporations whose shares are sold daily upon the market. Through partnership that finds it necessary to interest their ablest workers, through merchants who can manage their vast enterprises successfully only by interesting exceptional ability, in every quarter of the business world, avenues greater in number, wider in extent, easier of access than ever before existed, stand open to the sober, frugal. Energetic, enabled mechanic, to the scientifically educated youth, to the office boy, and to the clerk, avenues through which they can reap greater successes than were ever before within the reach of these classes in the history of the world. When, therefore, the young man in any position or in any business. Explains and complains that he has not opportunity to prove his ability and to rise to partnership. The old answer suffices: quote, "The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings." End, End of section four: How to win fortune.